0: And everyone else, if you have a Bible, you can open it to John 11, or you can read along on the screen. It's Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, and we are going to be in John 11 looking at the resurrection of Lazarus and how that points to the great resurrection of Jesus. Now this is a long chapter, alright? So we're going to do a lot of reading, but then we'll just refer back to it during the actual message. But now that you've got all comfortable, I'm going to ask that you would stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. If you're not able to stand due to health, that's totally fine too. We just do this to remind us in a world of so hyper information, information overload that when we come to God's Word, it is God's Word. So here we go, Matthew 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world, light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant that he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins said to his fellow disciples, Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher's here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her Jesus wept. So the Jews said, "See how he loved him." But some of them said, "Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying?" Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Then Jesus said, "Take away the stone." Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give thanks to you for your word, and we pray now that through all the depths of this wonderful chapter in your word, that you might help us by your spirit to not just scratch the surface of what is true, but but go to the depths of our heart. Help us now to have ears to hear. Open the eyes of our heart that we might behold wonderful and true, deep things in your word, Not just for this day, but for the everyday stuff of our life. Help us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I thought that that corpse was going to come right out of the coffin. This would have been an emotional climax to an already emotional state of affairs. We were at my great-uncle's funeral, and on this side of my family, the funerals were very long and very intense. But it was all over the emotional spectrum. I'd seen the sadness of my great aunt, a sadness like I'd never seen before. As we came to that time where the family made their final viewing, and she fell on her face in front of that casket, just screaming and wailing in the depths of despair. She was not a woman that put on a show, she was a modest, reserved, hard-working woman, but she was broken that her sweetheart for life was gone. And I can still remember her just crying out on that funeral home floor, I love you, I love you. One of the saddest things I've ever seen. But I've also never seen such excitement and celebration like I saw that day. So in this, this, this way that these funerals went down is these were long funerals. It wasn't this pack it in two hours on a Friday night combo we got going on now no offense that's fine but anyway but some of you guys know know what I'm talking about it used to be a bigger bigger affair and I remember now we were going to go and there was three different preachers who each basically had an hour sermon each and this was not teaching this was preaching Cody knows what I'm talking about this was hollering this was spitting this was taking your tie off taking your coat off And letting people know that although this is death, that Jesus is risen. But it got a little out of hand, at least in my mind, because I expected that. I'd been to funerals on this side of my family before. But what I did not expect was for this preacher, after his ties off, after his coats off, to get so into it that he came down off that stage and he reared back and he hit that casket as hard as he could and it started to shake. And I thought my front row old pallbearer duties were about to go from carrying that casket to picking up a corpse. It delete to say the least, my emotions were all over the place. Was I supposed to be sad? Was I supposed to be celebrating? Was I supposed to be wailing and hurt with my great-aunt? Or was I supposed to be whacking furniture in the joy of the Lord with this creature? And it brings us to the conflict that I think we feel in a lot of this text today, and in our lives, is we live in a world that is really sad, and yet we live in the reality of a God who is sovereign. We live in the reality of a Savior who is risen, and yet in the reality that there is brokenness in all of our hearts to some degree today. In reviewing this sermon, I thought, man, this this sermon feels kind of heavy and kind of sad. This is Resurrection Sunday. I was like, well, it's kind of too late to to prepare a new one. I thought, well, this is supposed to be a day of joy. And I'm sorry, if you've been around our church, you kind of might think sometimes, are these guys happy? We're happy, right? Blame it on me, right? We're just also a bunch of really broken people. Who are learning what it's like to be honest about that in the hope that we have in Jesus? And that's the tension we come to today. We've said over this weekend, or you've heard it said, like, Friday's here, but Sunday's coming, right? We rejoice at that, and Sunday is here. But the little pessimist in my head says, But so is Monday. (laughs) Sunday's coming. Praise the Lord. Rightly so. Rejoice. He is risen indeed. But so is Monday. And maybe if you're like me, we can have a hard time understanding how to acknowledge the realities of life's hurt and at the same time rejoice in the resurrection's hope. Some of you in here may even feel like you have to live in denial to enjoy the gospel. Some of you in here may at times even feel quite a degree of guilt and shame for actually feeling sad. Like, man, why can't I just believe this more? If I could only believe this better, I wouldn't feel like this on the inside. Some of you are thinking, is it just a lack of faith? And do I have to pretend I have friends because nobody really wants me to to bring what's on the inside to the outside? I remember one time I walked into a church and they had rules on the door before you entered the sanctuary. It was like these commandments. And one of the commandments was, thou shalt smile. Now trust me, I felt like that at some points in my life. But what about the man who just lost his job? And walks through those doors. Thou shalt smile. What about the, the woman who just had a miscarriage. And walks through those doors. Thou shalt smile. What about the marriage that's falling apart? What about the person stuck in addiction? To pornography. To substances. To painkillers. Thou shalt smile. The world around me and within me is falling apart. And Jesus just wants me to suck it up and smile. And maybe especially on Resurrection Sunday. (laughs) Put on your nice shirt, right? And smile. But the story of God is a story of hope, but it's also a story of Job, of Joseph, of Jeremiah as we see in our text today of Jesus. And maybe if we learn to honor our hurt, we will not downplay our hope, but actually experience a greater rejoicing in it than the rejoicing we muster up through the willpower that follows our denial. You see, the resurrection gives us a hope that at the same time honors our hurt. That's where we're drilling in today, that the resurrection gives us a hope That at the same time, honors are hurt. Well, how do we do that? The first is we've got to be able to confess that Jesus is both in control and confusing. All right, this is what we see in these first 16 verses. We've already read a lot, lot, so like I said, we're going to refer back. So the first three verses, we see here that Jesus really loves his friends. He loves Martha, he loves Mary, and he loves Lazarus. It is so clear. You can see again in verse 3, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And Jesus is in control here because verse 4 says when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But what do we see happens? Lazarus dies. Lazarus dies. Is that not an a, a interesting verse in verse 6? Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, reiterating the love, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he didn't go heal him. Now y'all may be more spiritual than I am, but that's a little confusing to me. It's just hammering home. Jesus loves these people. Therefore, or so, He doesn't do anything. And then He talks, well, here's why. It's for the glory of God. It's so that the Son of Man might be glorified. Later on in these verses, notice verses 14 and 15, He says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. So it's, it's for... God's glory, for the glorification of Jesus. It's got to be out of love for Lazarus. I mean, it's just being reiterated. It's got to be for the good of this family. It's got to be for the good of the disciples. And so maybe we're kind of with Thomas in verse 16. Now, I may be reading this wrong, but remember, Thomas has a reputation for something. What is it? Doubt. So, Thomas, I think, is probably being a little sarcastic here. I don't think I'm taking too much liberty with the text. He says, all right, guys, let's go die with him. Now, why does he say that? Because they've just previously pointed out that Jesus doing this is costly. This is an area that's close to Jerusalem. It's an area where Jesus has already been threatened to be stoned. And so Thomas has this mix of both sarcasm and maybe faith, right? Because he's like, this doesn't make any sense. But let's go with him. Because guess what? Jesus doesn't always make a lot of sense from our earthly point of view. But we trust him. Being a pastor's child, you, you get talked about from up here. So here we go again, Josiah. All right. Josiah has become very good at chess, in my opinion. If you play him, you might beat him and you might disagree. He would say that he's not that great. But when he plays me, he beats me, and it's very frustrating. One of the most frustrating parts is you, you have to shake hands after you lose, if you know that about chess. So you lose, and then he leans over with a big smile, and you got to shake hands. Not cool. Especially when you're a dad, right? And you're like watching YouTube videos secretly and not telling him because you're going to show up and win, and it just still doesn't work. Now what's most hard is if you know anything about chess, and I know very little, is you you play the game in such a way where it can look like you're losing so that you actually win. And that really makes you feel dumb if you're on the other side of the board. So actually when Josiah is beating me, it looks like he's losing on purpose to set up this epic win. I'm then humiliated, and what's the greater cause of that victory that Josiah has? It's his glory right? I've got him now. I took his queen only to realize whatever the other piece of the board is he has facing me. You can see why I lose. (laughs) Nobody likes to be hurt or humiliated for somebody else's glory. I wonder if that's what deep down in your heart you feel like Jesus does to you. If you're willing to get that, honest. Is Jesus just kind of playing chess with my life to say, I'm going to let them really get hurt right here so later I can look really good? I don't think the answer is yes. I think that's why in this text it is reiterating Jesus loves him Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them. When you lose your job, when you face that suffering, that relationship breaks down, that disease, that depression, that death, Jesus is not playing some type of game with your life. Jesus is not trying to beat you. Jesus is on a mission to beat the very things that are beating you. This is the tension of faith that we find the disciples in here. Jesus is in control. And Jesus sometimes leaves us feeling confused. This is the tension of the resurrection. This is the tension of this weekend. This is the tension of our lives. Is we might not always know what Jesus is doing, why he's doing it, when he's doing it, but we know that he's doing it because he loves us. From our point of view, this may be hard, but this must be clear that we have to learn to trust to confess that Jesus is both in control and confusing. The Word of God makes it clear that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his Father's will. The Word of the God makes it clear that though we feel like sheep who are being led to the slaughter, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, and God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. The Word of God makes clear that in the end, Jesus wins. All these are true. And we need to rejoice that they are true. They are true without qualification. But we can still feel confused. And maybe that's a question. Do you think you can be? Well, guess what? If you are, you are. But do you have permission to express it? Go read the Psalms. If the Psalms are anything, it's the prayer book of Israel, the the hymnal of Israel, of a people who live in this space. And God said, I want that in My Word. A people who say, how long, O Lord, will You forsake Me? You know, if we believe this is the Word of God, inspired by God, directed by God then we've got to believe God could have not wanted that in there. But he said, I want to give my people even words to wrestle with the fact that yes, I am in control and you feel confused. To be faithful disciples in this world who follow the resurrected Jesus, we have got to be able to hold together the fact that He is in control and at times we feel confused and to bring that to Him. To say with Thomas... I don't know where this is going, but I'm going with Him. Resurrection hope grows deeper when we can confess both. But also, we've got to experience Jesus as both sovereign and sad. This is what we see in verses 17 through 37. So if oftentimes we're not able to put in control and confusing together... We've also got to be able to put together and experience sovereign and sad. Where do we see Jesus' sovereignty? His reign, his deity, his divinity, his control. Verses 17 through 27. Jesus shows up in verse 17 and he's at least four days late. It's just reiterated and reiterated. This guy's dead, he died. And Martha runs out to Him and she's like, Jesus, if You had been here, this wouldn't have happened. You're you're able to, to give the blind sight, to make the lame walk. You're able to raise the dead. Why didn't You come? And what Jesus says here is she professes both her faith and her hurt because she says, I believe You could have did it and I still believe You can do something. what Jesus does here, to grow her, is to give her a paradigm for resurrection that is not about an event that happens in the unfolding of history, but to see that resurrection is located in a person. We hear these words in verse 25. Jesus is saying, I'm not talking, Martha, about you learning about when this resurrection happens. I want you to hear that I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe in me. This is where Jesus is wanting to grow their faith. Not, do you believe in the resurrection? Right? There's a lot of debates around these things. But Jesus is saying, I don't want to know if you believe in the resurrection, I want to know you to believe in me, the one who is the resurrection. That your hope is not found in an eschatological or end times timeline. Your hope is found in a person. Do you believe? And she says, yes, I believe. This is the faith in in a sovereignty like no one has ever seen before in the history of the world. Many religions believe in some form of resurrection, but none believe in the person being the resurrection. The claim here that Jesus is making is astounding. But it only makes what happens next that much more shocking. In verses 28 through 33, we see Jesus sees the sadness. Mary comes out to meet, Mar- to meet Jesus as Martha did. In verse 33, we hear these words, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus sees people who are sad. So whatever you think about Jesus' sovereignty, He's not like a boss who's showing up in control saying, could everybody just calm down? Could everybody just shut up and listen to me? I've got a plan. He's not that kind of king. He sees people in their pain, in their hurt, in their crying. And how do we know he really sees it and not just observe it? Because what the end of the verse says, he's deeply moved in his spirit. Could be translated, he's indignant. Or to take it even further, if you're not used to that word, indignant, he is righteously angered, he is stirred up, and he's greatly troubled. Do you have a theology of a Jesus that fits with what this verse says? That He is deeply angered, irritated, indignant in His spirit, and greatly troubled. He doesn't just see them. He enters into their emotional reality. And so we come to this verse... This is the shortest verse in the Bible, as we all know, and yet I would say if you've not memorized it, memorize it now. Here we go. Jesus wept. We used to kind of joke as that at kids when we're talking about verse memory. I can do one. It's no joke. That's a good one to memorize. Kids, you're in here. Jesus wept. All those big words, that's hard, right? Pontius Pilate. Jesus wept. Man, I don't think we could spend enough time draining out all of the theological and life applications of those two words. The sovereign Son of God cries. He's in control and he cries. He's sovereign and he cries. Why is he crying? Is he crying because Lazarus has died? Is he crying because he sees how hard it is, and everybody else is weeping? There's, you know, there's debates. You know, commentators debate everything on what that is. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Some people say that's a a cop out, an interpretation. But I don't know. I don't know if things are so easily delineated when it comes to how we feel. We just know that Jesus is sad. He's really sad that his friend has died and his friends are all weeping. The resurrection and the life has tears flowing down his face. My dad is one of the kindest people in the world if you were to meet him but when I was a child he he to me was a big man. Strongest and toughest person I knew. Never saw so much energy that he had to work. And, and nonstop, and then he was in the army when I was little, and I remember him like jumping out of a helicopter, paratrooping or something at Fort Benning in Columbus, Georgia. You know, at the end of their thing, and then we moved to Texas, and I remember getting to hold of his M16 one day, and just larger than life to me when I was a little kid. And he could get upset sometimes, and so as I imagine my dad from those eyes of a kid, are those blazing blue eyes. Against that red tanned hardened skin and that clenched bottom lip My bro- younger brother can imitate him better than I can Get in that bathroom boy. Anyway <laughs> and I love him. My dad Never went overboard, but my as he would he might as well have been Josie Wells or Dirty Harry if you know Clint Eastwood But I was a sensitive kid <laughs> Right who didn't, wasn't very outdoorsy, more indoorsy, as Jim Gaffigan says, the great prophet. And and I cried as a kid. I was a crier. And you know one thing I never saw my dad do as a kid? Was cry. Right? That wasn't a cool thing for men to do. Now, we cry a lot around here. But anyway, that's new in history. He, But I remember also when I was young and... After the army, my dad became a follower of Jesus. It was amazing. And I remember one Sunday morning in a church service, I don't know if it was during a song or during a sermon, but I looked over there and I saw a tear coming down my dad's face. And again, I don't remember that sermon or I don't remember that song, but I remember that tear. And I thought, maybe my dad isn't so different from me after all. There's a lot of distance when you think somebody's just so tough and so strong and so in control, and you feel so weak and confused all the time. And over the years, it wasn't more toughness, although some of that that caused me to respect him. it was as I grew to know his tenderness. Maybe you've come to Resurrection Sunday rightly rejoicing in the sovereign, tough victory of the one who defeats sin, death, and hell. And praise the Lord, we're here to rejoice. But the good news is, is that the one who arrives because Sunday's coming is the one who will be there to cry with you when Monday gets here. He gets you. He's with you. He's not some distant, deistic creator who winds the world up and sets back and lets it run until He comes to make all things right. He is the Son of God who entered into our lives, not just with a plan to execute, but as a person who in His humanity felt sadness. Resurrection hope means... That we have to see Jesus as both sovereign in his divinity and sad in his humanity. Can you imagine him seeing you when you're hurt? I don't know that you can go there right now, but when you're hurt next time or feeling sad, I want you to imagine Jesus looking at you. And what do you see? Do you see someone saying, looking at their clock, how much longer are you going to sit there and whine? Do you see someone say, I guess we're going to have to go back and do another Bible study because you don't have enough faith? What do you see? Or do you look over there and you see him crying? Crying with you. You see, Jesus here was deeply moved and troubled. And guess what? It wasn't because He had a lack of faith. He's the sinless Son of God who is able to sympathize with us in all our weaknesses, yet in no way sin. So if you think getting deeply troubled and stirred up in your spirit in your sadness and anger around it is a lack of spirituality, then you think you're more holy than Jesus. You see, no matter how well you come to know about how emotions work and sadness works or anxiety works or depression works, guess what? You still might feel it. Sometimes I think we forget that being sad in this world is just a part of being human. That there's not like something special wrong with you, like you're a special kind of broken because you're really sad actually to live in this world that we live in and not be sad a lot, you're probably the one who needs to do some work. (laughs) There's a lot of sad stuff. Jesus wept. When we are sad, what we are showing is that we honor something. Sadness shows what you value. Jesus valued His friends. Jesus valued life. And so He was sad. Blessed are those who mourn. Sadness tells the truth about your heart. Sometimes that's revealing, isn't it? Somebody dies maybe and you're not super sad and somebody messes with a something that's your hobby, and you get super sad. And what a healthy and holy sadness leads to, though, like in this text, as we're going to see, and we've already seen in this language, it it leads to a healthy, holy anger. You know, we've learned this statement from some of our other friends in ministry, is Jesus was the angriest person who ever lived. How's that make you feel? Most of us in our life are doing everything we can to do to not be sad and not be angry when Jesus was the saddest person that ever lived and the angriest person that ever lived. What does that mean? Not in the sinful ways, of course. It's passion. You have to go through the door of sadness to get to the the energy of passion. Like, this matters to me. You see, this is not a call to just sit and wallow in stuff. No, what we do when we're wallowing, that's not sadness, that's self-pity. Sadness is saying, this is wrong. This is why Paul will say, we must have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Like you've got to feel deeply how sad, how much sadness you should have around your sin before you get the anger to say, I'm actually going to change this. Only by being sad enough can you be angry enough to change or to persevere. For some of you, your marriage needs to get a little sadder so that it can get a little more passion to change. In your fight clubs, our small discipleship groups in our church, if you're new here, there needs to be times where we get sad together so that we can get angry or passionate enough together to work. In our missional communities, as we look at the people groups that we serve... If there's no broken-heartedness over those people, I can guarantee you there will not be any passion to actually reorient your life to bring the good news of Jesus to them. Who is it that God said He is near? the broken-hearted and the contrite in spirit? And why do we not fear to go there because He's sovereign? So we hold together that He's in control, even if it's confusing. We hold together that though we are sad, He is sovereign. And the last thing here is we've got to trust His power even when it's going to be followed by more pain, at least for now. At the end of this text, in verses 38 to 51, and really the end of the chapter, we see Jesus displays His resurrection power, but He points forward to a greater display. Verse 38, Then Jesus deeply moved again. Again, this language of this, this indignation down in his soul. He's getting riled up. You know, know that language. Riled up. He came to the tomb. Right? This isn't Jesus, meek and mild, flannel graph, you know. Lazarus, come forth. No, Jesus is upset here. He does not like what's going on. Deeply moved, he comes to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone was laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And there's resistance. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, there's going to be an odor. He's been dead for four days. So whatever she's saying she believes, there's, there's some confusion here. She's still thinking, this must be metaphorical, something in the future, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I think you've heard me. I thank you that you've heard me. I didn't, I didn't, I'm praying this to you so they hear and they know that this is you through me. When he said these things, he cri- came out. No, he cried out, that is, my bad. Verse 43, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. This is power. Jesus is passionate enough to do here what they think is foolish. Take away the stone. He's passionate enough to trust the power of God for the glory of God. He's passionate enough to pray in faith for all to hear. He's passionate enough to love everyone to lead them into a deeper experience of the love and power of God than they ever could have planned or pulled off on their own. He speaks to a dead man and He lives. This is His power. This is why we're here today to celebrate. Jesus raises the dead. But that's just the start of why we're here and we know that. And the end of this text points us to why Jesus is talking about a greater resurrection. Jesus is not playing games here. This is going to come at a cost. Immediately after it, we read in this text, not, and everybody decided Jesus was the Messiah and all of Israel worshiped Him. No, some believe but some other snitches, right, went to the Pharisees and they said, this is, he's, he's doing this and if we don't, we don't get control of this, everybody's going to believe in Him because people like guys who raise the dead. And they're all upset, and Caiaphas is like, you guys don't understand politics. We can make this work. Slick politician, this guy. But what he does is he thinks he's slick, but again, there's the sovereign, faithful Jesus at work in the plan of God. And this guy said he did not know that when he said that one man should die for all the people, that he was prophesying exactly what Jesus wanted to happen. That he would die for this nation and not only this nation, but for all who would be gathered into the people of God from all the nations. How do we know that Jesus is not playing games with us? Like, watch me raise this guy while you heard in the meantime. It's because this whole scene is going to cost Jesus the most. Lazarus is going to die again. Sunday's coming, but so is Monday too. How do we have hope in Monday that we're having today and Sunday? It's because of a greater death than Lazarus' death. Jesus would be a dead man. But as he went to the cross, he would go to that cross, and he would not merely go there to die for himself. But as Caiaphas unwittingly prophesies here, he would die for us all. Every sin that we've committed, every suffering that we've endured, every satanic influence and attack that we have faced, Jesus would go to the cross and he would bear them all on our behalf. And on that cross, guess what it would look like? God is late He's he's hanging there suffering as the Son of God. And you've got to think the disciples are sitting there waiting. If He's the Son of God, surely the Father will spare Him. They're confused. What's going on? Most of them are hiding because they don't even have a category for this. And Jesus is being mocked at this very place. If you are who you say you are, they're crying out in mockery. Come down from that cross and save yourself. Show that you are who you say you are. It doesn't look like God cares. And Jesus even cries out those words from Psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he takes upon himself the very worst of the confused sufferer in the history of God. There is a delay. Good Friday is followed by Holy Saturday, the day of waiting. But we know the good news. Lazarus's stone will not be the last stone rolled away in the store. But another stone will be rolled away and Jesus will be shown to be who He claimed to be in a way that surprised and shocked the world, even the disciples who He had prophesied to about it, that He is the risen King that He is vindicated, that He is validated. And this is why we celebrate today. Because we know He is no mere just good teacher in the history of the world, but He is the one who is sad for us, but ultimately the one who substitutes for us, who suffers for us, and who gives us victory. And we take that Sunday victory into our Monday lives. Going back to work a week after... After a week of vacation, is horrible, isn't it? Right? I think we can all agree. Right? You've been away, and then you got to go back. That Monday comes. And you're like, oh, my goodness. I wish I could have another job, or I wish I didn't have to go back. But what about the week before vacation? You start to get a little extra energy, don't you? Right? Like, I can put up with this boss. I can put up with these co-workers because in just a few days, I don't got to be around them anymore. Right? If you like like going to the beach, I got counting down the days till toes in the sand. If you like going to the mountains, counting down the days till I'm uh, trying to get that jiffy pop to work with all the good intentions of the world for my kids. But whatever. You're looking forward to it. The question is, which way do you view Jesus' resurrection? Which way? The gospel reality says that ordinary Mondays are coming after Resurrection Sunday, but this Sunday isn't just any Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus is not a metaphor, an idea, but the reality of a person. I am the resurrection and the life. So we live into this resurrection knowing that He is with us as we step into it, But He's coming for us. This is why now, as we're about to come to the Lord's table, Jesus says, Celebrate me as risen, and as often as you do this, proclaim my death until I return. The resurrection is the surety that we are not just living meaningless lives in some sort of false hype. This is why the early, the first disciples were willing to die for this stuff. If you read the Gospels, they were not otherwise courageous men. They were mainly hiding at the cross, but after the resurrection they were willing to die. Why? Because they saw He really is risen. They could go back to work. They could enter the stuff of everyday life with the ability to be sad over what needed to be sad about, and yet to trust Jesus enough to have the passion To keep kicking the darkness until it bled daylight, as some song I've heard said. To keep trying, to keep working, to keep changing, to keep loving, to keep living. When I thought that corpse was going to come out of that casket that day, I didn't know whether to cry or to clap. But we know what we can do today, both. Both. That's the paradox of kingdom for people. We can clap while we cry. And we can cry while we clap. Because Jesus is risen. With a resurrection hope that honors our hurt. Father, we thank you for this good news. And as we come now to the table, might we rejoice together in the finished work of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.